Welcome to the Battery Technology Podcast, sponsored by Munters, experts in climate control systems for safe, high-quality battery cell production and R&D, delivering stable, low dew point conditions whilst minimising energy use. Episode 5, Creating a Circular Battery Value Chain. Welcome to episode five of the Battery Technology Podcast with myself, Ken Davis. As the growth in the battery technology industry develops, demands on the resources required to support that industry, well, they intensify in turn and it creates something of a dilemma. Does the rapid advancement of a technology which is rooted in the desire to do good, to mitigate the risk of climate change, risk causing its own damage in the wake of demands for resources that its own growth requires. But in many ways, the very fact that the industry is in its infancy provides an opportunity, an opportunity to design an industry that recognises the need to be sustainable at a very early stage, an opportunity for the industry to recognise the social environmental and economic impacts that can result from its existence and to develop mitigation strategies alongside its growth. Today I'm joined by Inga Peterson, Executive Director of the Global Battery Alliance. And the Global Battery Alliance have been instrumental in developing strategies to promote the principle of circularity within the battery value chain. And I wanted to dig deeper into that and what that means in practical terms as the global battery industry builds its supply chains. Well, I am very pleased indeed to be joined by Inga Peterson, who's the Executive Director of the Global Battery Alliance. So I guess, Inga, you're in a very good position to uh, give us a, uh, well, a very accurate portrayal, really, of the kind of pressures that the supply chain and the value chain within the battery technology sector will face over the course of the next few years. Yeah, indeed. I mean, we're looking essentially at an entirely new industry um, that, you know, comes with a set of opportunity and with a set of quite unique challenges. But for me and for the Global Battery Alliance or, you know, representing our members, the focus really is on the opportunity to design um, you know, some of these uh, principles or, or frameworks um, for scaling this industry to meet uh, the demand and ultimately to help us achieve uh, Paris Agreement targets through electrification of transport and power sectors in a more sustainable manner to avoid some of the other pitfalls uh, that other industries may have run into uh, really from the outset. Clearly, in order to meet those goals, batteries are the answer. Uh, there's no other comparable technologies that are really going to propel ourselves towards those goals. Having said that, of course, that puts a lot of demand on the battery industry itself to meet those goals. So it might be worth me knowing the Global Battery Alliance itself, structurally, how does that work? How does the, how does the organization represent its members? Sure, maybe just a couple of words on, on our background then. So the Global Battery Alliance was born really out of a twin realization. A, exactly what you were pointing out, batteries hold the key to unlocking the green energy transition. Um, through electrification of transport and power, they're key to uh, almost all renewable energy infrastructure through battery, battery energy storage systems, uh, electrified transport cities, etc. But at the same time, given their material intensity, 
uh, if we're comparing them to other forms of transport, for example, electric vehicles compared to ICE, um, there is a set of unique challenges. There's the raw material requirements themselves, and then all the collateral impacts and the sustainable sustainability impacts, good and bad, along the value chain. And part of the founding rationale of the GBA was really um, to address these uh, through collective action, because these issues, if you're looking, for example, at child labor um, associated with cobalt value chain specifically, um, human rights um, issues or even uh, carbon emissions through battery production, they're complex and they cannot be solved by a single stakeholder alone. They cannot be solved by government alone. They cannot be solved by the mining sector alone. So how do we catalyze effective collective action across the value chain to address it together? And that was really the founding rationale for the Global Battery Alliance. And this has grown now to over 130 members that really span the entire battery value chain and also the global ecosystem. So we have the biggest mining companies um, amongst our members, uh, the cell manufacturers, materials, many active um, materials uh, manufacturers, OEMs, all the way down to the recyclers. But we're also bringing them together with some of the key non-governmental and non-corporate voices from that ecosystem to together define what are the issues and what are some of the avenues and how we may address them. That's interesting. I guess, fortunately, this industry is almost being born in front of our eyes over the course of the last three or four years, which is unique. I guess that gives us an opportunity because of its its newness, to actually at the outset try to design the supply chain in such a way which reflects these goals in a way that more established industries, it's impossible to do now. Exactly. And for us, the key to achieving that, to scaling more sustainable battery value chains is lies in transparency. Because we cannot measure, uh, or we cannot manage what we can't measure, and also we cannot improve what we cannot measure. Battery value chains are extremely globalized, they're highly complex, and they're traditionally fairly opaque. <laughs> I think it's only recently that uh, people are understanding just how many materials actually go into these batteries and, and the routes that they travel <laughs> through the supply chain, um, really highly globalized. Um, so for us, we have devised as one of the key instruments to help make these battery value chains more sustainable, something called the battery passport. So it's essentially a digital product passport for batteries that uh, combines reporting on three core elements. One being the technical parameters uh, for batteries. So that is manufacturing history, capacity, temperature ranges, uh, recycle content, but that could in the future also include disassembly instructions for recyclers, for example, to enhance material recovery and facilitate more circularity in battery value chains. The second component speaks directly to the transparency on the tracking and tracing of the material flows, whether that's lithium, cobalt, graphite, um, to have a tracking and tracing and provenance data for these materials as they travel through the supply chain. And then critically, and this is where we've really concentrated our efforts, is to integrate that with consistent reporting against commonly agreed sustainability performance indicators. And because of uh, where we've come from as an organization, we have highlighted um, two dimensions here, one being the battery carbon footprint, because battery production is um, carbon intensive, emissions intensive, um, taking away obviously, you know, from the net reduction potential over the lifetime um, of the battery and the vehicle in use. Um, so we have uh, brought all of our stakeholders together to agree uh, a set of rules on how to calculate the battery carbon footprint in a comparable manner. 
at each step of the value chain. Uh, and the second um, more qualitative element is a child labor and human rights uh, indices or rule books that outline uh, the pathways for companies to really address the root causes of child labor in their uh, supply chains um, and, and uh, in respect of, of human rights. Um, and that combined together, um, ultimately what we're hoping to achieve is to have product level reporting uh, to benchmark that data and then to issue a quality seal, which will help guide consumer decisions to purchase more uh, sustainable products, but also in terms of B2B or procurement decisions to really facilitate a race to the top on which products perform better against these key sustainability performance indicators. And we've just recently um, launched a proof of concept for this to show that this can work in practice. Uh, we've worked with a number of OEMs across three different pilots, working with uh, multiple IT solution providers, including blockchain companies, uh, to show that this reporting can work on end-to-end -end value chains from mine to OEM. So we've done cradle to gate so far, um, and we were able to show that it can be done. And now, of course, the devil is in the detail, and much work uh, lies ahead of us until this becomes a regulatory requirement uh, in the EU in 2027 as per the EU battery regulation. But we also anticipate to see this in other regions um, and really also to set an example for other industries to follow in terms of the digital product passport and, and this um, product level sustainability reporting. I was going to ask about the technology base that you can use to track. That's a, that's a blockchain solution, is it? Is, is, that the, is, that, is that the way this will work in terms of some kind of digital signature? So the way the Global Battery Alliance is approaching us is that we actually technology and standard agnostic at this point. Um, mm. This is obviously where you have commercial solution providers stepping into the fray, uh, offering their services uh, to implement some of these battery passport tools. Um, so we, what we have emphasized, rather than favoring a solution, whether that's blockchain or, or others, um, is to say that we want to facilitate an environment that is interoperable. Uh, we're, you know, realizing that an OEM, uh, you know, may receive data from multiple different IT providers according to the different value chains or different supply chains of these materials, um, and that they ultimately need to be able to talk to each other and integrate into a jointly issued battery passport. So um, yeah. blockchain is certainly one of the technologies, but it's not necessarily the only one. So uh, other, um, you know, technological solutions may also serve uh, to implement a battery passport framework. And we anticipate that, you know, the market will ultimately self-select, uh, you know, which are the dominant um, instruments here or, or the dominant solution providers. And are we talking here about traceability at an individual battery level or are we talking about traceability here at a at a producer level if you like or, or at an organizational level just just so i'm clear on that so some of this is still to be defined um we've pilot tested it at the batch level um mm -hmm. in our proof of concepts um but it really depends also here on what the regulations are going to specify and ask for because mm -hmm. um, it's obviously going to be dynamic um, and um, we will yeah it has to be a dynamic uh, dynamically responsive system um, but the unit uh, is still to be decided um, for us we've uh, we've piloted it at the batch level interesting it's not a significant step in my experience of moving from batch to individual if we've caught it at batch level yeah. moving it to an individual uh, battery level will be the relatively easy step i would imagine um interesting um uh, so 
what are the obstacles to this? Because clearly this is a new idea and it's, it's a, it's, it's clearly a very powerful idea as well. But in terms of the obstacles to its implementation, clearly there are technical challenges, which you seem to be on top of. In terms of solving those technical challenges and then implementing at an industrial level, if you like, what are the major obstacles that you foresee in that step? I think there's a, a key emphasis needs to be placed on the whole conversation around data governance. Um, hmm. Ultimately, for this to be a tool that inspires trust in consumers and a source of trusted data, the data assurance frameworks, uh, independent verification and validation of this data is going to be key. And we really, as a multi-stakeholder organization, believe that these rules on data collection standards, on disclosure, on access, on verification should be elaborated jointly, um, where civil society organizations have a role to play on what they consider to be actionable data to come out of this framework, whereas industry may be pushing, you know, for less disclosure, you know, in order to preserve commercially sensitive data. And the appropriate balance here needs to be struck for this to be an actionable tool that is going to catalyze changes across the value chain. Um, but at the moment, there is no rule set that exists uh, to really govern the sector. And this is especially critical now that we're seeing a proliferation of initiatives who are you know, working to implement this. And ultimately, for this to be effective, and given the globalized nature of these value chain, it needs to be a globally harmonized framework, both of performance expectations, but also for the data governance elements. Um, we cannot, we definitely see a risk of a fragmentation of efforts where we'll have a US battery passport and multiple EU battery passports or a German battery passport that, you know, compete with each other in terms of functionalities. But for this to be really an easy to understand tool, you know, that's ultimately going to impact and make these value chains more sustainable and not only meet, you know, compliance requirements, you know, for regulators, but really to catalyze change, which is what we're working for. Um, we need to have a global harmonization here. So I think that's the biggest risk and the biggest opportunity that we're actively working to address. Yeah, it'd be a, it would be an amazing achievement if that was achieved globally. Uh, you're right, of course, the, the risk of a of different battery passports emerging geographically. The, the danger of that, of course, is that the rigor and the transparency may be different between one and the other. And, and the difficulty there can be a, an almost competitive race to the bottom rather than the race to the top, where, where organizations choose to be under a less regulated environment than, than another one. It's, I, get it, I guess it brings me to the political point, really. I mean, one of the things that clearly we're seeing within the battery technology field is because of its growth, because of its potential, because of its, its importance, going forward strategically to every nation really it's got a significant political element to some of the decisions which are being taken and we're already kind of seeing that within some of the investments and the incentives to investment maybe uh, around the world which are starting to be competitive from a political perspective is there a political angle to the work you do clearly you'll be doing a lot of work with organizations within the supply chain but are you doing similar work with uh, NGOs and the political dimension to make sure the importance of capturing this globally is recognized at a political level. 
So I guess the unique niche for impact for the Global Battery Alliance here is to serve as a platform to bring these stakeholders together, bring NGOs together with policymakers, with the, with the battery value chain, with the corporate side, um, to have these conversations and, you know, to emphasize the need for harmonization here and take it out of the geopolitical tensions. Because we're really uh, finding, you know, that it is obviously a highly charged environment. We do not have... Um, we do not have these same limitations in our engagement. If you're looking at our pilots, they represent the realities on the ground in terms of the participation um, of our members there. Uh, you know, obviously much of the market is still centralized in you know China, Korea, and this is reflected in our pilots. We've had active participation of our members who really you know willing to collaborate. Um, so we take an impartial approach um, to these dynamics, but also have the real benefit of, you know, bringing these different stakeholders together, um, you know, for dialogue and exchange uh, outside of any sort of bilateral or, you know, regional dynamics that we may find on the geopolitical scene. I read a very interesting report that you produced with McKinsey which I think is called Battery 2030, talks about resilience, sustainability, and circularity, uh, which, by the way, if, if uh, I, I thoroughly recommend to read because it's a, it's a very interesting document in terms of how the, how the industry will need to organise itself going forward. One of the things I just wanted to pick up on in that, from that report is this concept of circularity. And just dig a little bit deeper into that because it's 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 a word we, we start to hear much more of. And I'm interested in what your vision is in terms of circularity in relation to the battery technology space. Uh, if you're looking at the battery industry right now, it is not designed for circularity at all. Um, you hmm. see uh, electric vehicle batteries, lithium-ion batteries, they're not standardized in size and components and chemistries, which you know poses huge challenges for recyclers. Um, they don't even know what's in it. It's like a black box. So already by bringing transparency on material composition, on assembly and disassembly um, of these batteries, uh, we're hoping to contribute uh, to uh, enhanced circularity. But it probably starts before that because oh, circularity really um, doesn't begin with recycling, right? It starts with design. Um, how do you design this entire value chain in a way that you have um, reduced need for primary materials uh, going into this. Um, so, yeah, for us, the main instrument with which we're working right now on enhancing circularity is the battery passport, just to bring um, more transparency um, to this. Um, but we're also seeing, you know, how can we leverage the platform that we've built on addressing some of the roadblocks um, for circularity, mm -hmm. whether that's related to um, transport of these materials, for example, you know, what are the regulatory um, barriers? Um, what can we learn from China? They're about a generation ahead of us when it comes to these um, electric vehicle batteries. They are finding that recovery rates are much lower than they anticipated. So how do we gather some of these lessons and, you know, really um, avoid some of these pitfalls in other jurisdictions um, in order to, um, to have robust recycling infrastructure that is prepared um, when this current generation of EV batteries comes offline um, and, and hits the system. And this idea of resilience is another interesting term. But what, what's your, what do you mean by resilience and, and what does that mean for organisations within the supply chain, you think, in terms of what, what does, how would you define resilience and what would it look like? That's a, it's a very good question. It's probably around long-term predictability also of demand 
We've seen yeah. such fluctuations. It's, I mean, it's something that is endemic to the mining sector is the cyclicality and these super cycles. And I think they have a direct knock-on effect on the battery industry. So how yeah. can we provide more stability, both in terms of uh, the prices? What we're finding now um, is this mismatch of demand and supply that you know we've that the mining sector has actually lacked investment in these critical minerals and now everybody is playing catch up but the lead up times are such you know that it takes a minimum of seven years maybe to to open a large-scale industrial mine to provide these materials so I think for me, a large part of resilience is to have more, um, you know, predictability here um, on demand and supply. And of course, nobody could have predicted just the rate of growth. But to what extent uh, can we better prepare for this and, and have long term perspectives here? And um, um, yeah, that that is obviously a core part um, that I that I would emphasize, I think. What would you see in terms of the the challenges in terms of the major challenges. I'm thinking now primarily, I guess, about human rights issues, about child labour issues. I mean, how does the how does the alliance, how does the battery passport concept deal with those more human issues? Quite understand how it how traceability helps in terms of at a at a componentry level, but in terms of the human rights issues, which are significant within this uh, industry, how does the passport concept, the circularity concept, the resilience concept, talk to those particular issues? That's an excellent question. Thank you for this. So I guess if we take a sort of traditional compliance perspective, if you look at an issue like child labor, a compliance point of view would say, you know, these companies need to tick a box. We do not employ children at our mine site, at our refinery, at our factory. What we're trying to do is really raise the level of ambition and to say, what are the pathways with which companies can make positive impacts in the communities that they operate in and have that independently validated and recognized by the consumers downstream. So if you're looking at child labor and you're looking at our child labor indices, for example, it's not a question of do are you employing children or what is the minimum age at your operations? Um, you know, are you complying with uh, local laws, which is a typical, you know, uh, approach, but to say what can companies do within their impact domain to actually address the root causes of child labor. And that can, you know, vary from uh, what kind of uh, maternity benefits do they offer? You know, do they uh, give women the chance to actually provide for their children, you know, when they're pregnant, um, when they're at home? Um, what, you know, is there other caretaker leave? Are they providing um free meals uh, during school vacations where children may otherwise be forced, uh, you know, to work in order to, um, uh, you know, uh, have subsistence. So these are the kinds of uh, impact pathways that we have collectively devised with our members, with NGOs, with our corporate members who are working in these communities um, to not necessarily expect companies to already have all the answers to the questions that we're asking them, but to give them the tools that if they want to do more, if they want to, you know, go a step further, further in addressing these issues this these are the pathways with which you could do that um, and we're giving you the tools to you know have that ultimately independently validated and also have you know this give you have this validated uh, for the consumer and uh, and recognized um you know publicly part of it is about providing a structure i think to organizations which are which is uniform which is consistent and and maybe catalyzing the thought processes along those lines. So I, I can definitely see the benefits from that. So in relation to the work you're doing with the passport and and 
similar um, initiatives. So what's the what's the route map on 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 that? So so where are you today in terms of adoption of these concepts, and what are the n- natural next steps, if you like, in your in your progress? So uh, we have launched a proof of concept where we have uh, assembled these end-to-end value chains, which in itself was actually a much more complex effort than it may first appear uh, at the product level, uh, cradle to gate. What, what, what were the unforeseen, because we always, ha- always have unforeseen complexities in project management, what were the unforeseen complexities in that, in that part of it? Um, just a complete lack of transparency over these supply chains. So to even try, so it is through the exercise that we carried out with the proof of concept that some of the OEMs that participated in this exercise for the first time identified the mine sites that they're actually sourcing their cobalt from. Because before, you know, they're they're buying it, you know, they know their supplier maybe, but they didn't know the mine sites. And, Mm. you know, what does that trigger in terms of internal due diligence that they may need to carry out? So it actually, even though it had a really limited scale, um, uh, uh, limited uh, scale of our pilots, it already had real world impacts because these companies, you know, could no longer claim that they don't know where it's coming from. But we've identified through this exercise the exact mine sites, uh, you know, in the exact jurisdiction. So triggering internal due diligence processes, you know, independent even of um, of any sort of um, sustainability ambitions, but just even from a regulatory uh, compliance perspective, especially in Germany with the incoming uh, with the new regulation there. Um, so for us, what's next is to show, of course, um, you know, we, we've taken the battery carbon footprint, child labor and human rights as so-called lighthouse indicators to show that the concept can work. But if we're looking at what, you know, what are the parameters that describe sustainable circular and responsible battery value chain, that obviously includes a larger variety of sustainability or ESG um, risks and impacts. So, you know, whether you're looking at forced labor, deforestation, um, biodiversity, um, there's a whole suite of, of uh, salient risks associated with battery value chains that would need to be captured in this indicator framework. So we're looking at completing that work, um, this complete indicator framework for the battery passport. And then uh, the second element I'd mentioned earlier is really on the data governance piece. So in order for this to be a trusted instrument, um, you know, I, we need to put in place solid rules on uh, the data assurance on how this data is verified, validated until such time, you know, that this can be guaranteed, um, that there can be independent verification, authentication of, of this reporting. Um, the GBA would not be able to issue quality seals or, or benchmarking of that data because it's really um, important that this is rooted in, you know, um, data that can be interrogated. It, that makes a lot of sense, and the Global Battery Alliance will be the will be the mark. Organisations will get a a stamp of approval from the Global Battery Alliance if they meet those those particular scorecards. If you like, is that am I reading that correctly? That is certainly the direction of travel and the level of ambition. So whether we see a proliferation of, you know, national regional initiatives is irrelevant to this ambition that, you know, at the global level, you know, we want to have this unified quality seal based on benchmarking of our commonly agreed indicators. So that's not industry reporting according to their own standards. That's not uh, industry reporting just to meet regulatory requirements. But when we're looking at our level of ambition, this is a new industry, we can shape it. Um, from the get-go in different ways. And we are also seeing a lot of players 
who are, by the way, making this their key um, differentiator in their key, core um, you know, business proposition to have more sustainable batteries or sustainable battery value chain. So it's it's also an exciting environment in, in that regard um, because we see it's a new industry. We see a lot of really dynamic companies that are positioning um, based on sustainability as a differentiator, not just on cost or um, location or you know wherever else. Yeah, and I guess it's fortunate that many of the people I talk to in this industry, and I guess you will as well, do share a common set of value or values in the sense of they are in this business in order to make a positive difference, particularly in terms of climate change. And therefore, I guess a proportion, a significant proportion of people in this industry are keen to actually develop systems that actually promote other beneficial outcomes from a from a global perspective i could put it that way uh, i guess that helps clearly you're at the at the start i've just embarked really on a huge project one that will take years and years and years i guess uh, how where does your optimism come from in terms of delivering this amazing these amazing concepts and what what are you pessimistic about? So let's start with the optimistic side of things. Uh, what what makes you optimistic that this will be delivered? It's really the experience of working with our members and the many, many, many hours that they've invested on top of their day jobs in the work that we're doing on a pro bono basis. Um, really, you know, discussing the details of our human rights and child labor and disease, whether the word should be shall or should. Um, these are all people with important, um, you know, uh, other occupations. But not only that, but also if we're looking at our pilot participation, it may have been limited, but it was in... Um, uh, a really, it's it's truly pioneering work, and these are companies that have stepped forward to volunteer information that has not yet been legally requested, or that they're not required to provide, and to really take a, a first step um, at increasing the transparency and accountability here. And also, if we're looking at our um, at our members and even the pilot participants, we've engaged. Um, battery manufacturers that total over 50% of the global industry share in terms of battery manufacturing. So it gives us actually great confidence that there's uh, a realization that it's not going to be a nice to have, but a must have to, you know, mm -hmm. to take this seriously from the beginning. So I think this is probably what renders me the most optimistic. And we've, um, we hear this confirmed, you know, by all of our members, we, we started, I started, um, about 12 months ago, we had 80 members. Uh, a year later, we're 135. Um, wow. So even the alliance itself, I think, is testament to how important this work is and, and that um, that our, our members want to see it happen. So what, what keeps you awake at night, though, in terms of the kind of things you think, actually, that that part of it is going to be really, really difficult to achieve? Mm. Yeah, there's probably two levels to this. What keeps me so many things keep me awake at night and I'm needing to, <laughs> to find the right response here. Um, it's probably just this this element of fragmentation that I mentioned before that it's yeah. more around uh, securing supplies, uh, domesticating um, and instrumentalizing these value chains you know for other purposes. I think we see uh, what what concerns me is also this this increasing um, politization of the entire question of whether we should have electric transport or ICE vehicles. I think it's becoming almost religious in some circles. And 
it's not uh, for me that's not a healthy state of the debate um and for that you know we need to be to honestly and frankly address the challenges that battery uh, and electric vehicles you know as an industry also uh, face um it's not the, the silver bullet for everything there's challenges but the more you know proactive we can be in addressing these ultimately you know it is it is clear from you know all the analysis that you look at that obviously this is the pathway that we need to go down but i think we we must not sort of ignore these challenges or try to gloss over them and you know present it as a perfect alternative that's uh, you know um, ready ready to to step in here as as the as the silver bullet for everything but you know let's face the challenges uh, together and address them proactively and honestly um and i think uh, yeah that's for me is probably the the biggest yeah, just this increasing politicization, that's probably concerning to me. Yeah, which we certainly see that. But I'm yet to see anybody come up with a better solution than this uh, in, in terms of the EV uh, transformation. So, Inga, thank you for that. That's been fascinating. Uh, and I absolutely recommend our listeners read that report. I'll put a link to that report, if I may, on the show notes for the podcast. It is a, it's a fascinating piece of work. And much. I wish you great success in what you do. I think it's, uh, it's fascinating work you do and it's challenging work. But ultimately, as, uh, as the most important things are, uh, it will be difficult, but it's worth striving for. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity to share some of our work. Fantastic. Thanks, Inga. Bye-bye. The Battery Technology Podcast is a copyrighted 2030 Net Zero Limited production. For more details of how to reach us, you'll find our contact details in the show notes or at our website, www.batterytechnologypodcast.com.